God, in moments like these when we encounter evil that is so prevalent, seems so strong and so random, something that we can't control or safeguard against, when we encounter grief that is so intense, despair that is really just beyond our ability to comprehend, when we think about needs that are so ongoing, it is great to feel the assurance of being able to come before you in prayer. And Father, to have the audacity to believe because you've told us to believe that the simple words that we offer as we gather together at 35 Chocolate Road on a Sunday morning can actually affect change in people's lives and in our world. And that's not because we're overly eloquent or real powerful or extremely righteous. It's because of who Jesus is, what he's done, and the fact that he presents our prayers to you. And God, you as a sovereign one act and move. So Father, today we pray. Father, we pray for those that were affected by the events this past Monday. We pray particularly for those families that lost brothers and sisters, fathers, children. God, we pray for those four families. We pray for there to be people who are around them will just literally come alongside and just be present in their lives as a way of comfort and a way of affirming your presence in their lives. God, see them through this journey. We pray for those that have been injured. Some of them will never walk the same way again. Their lives will be forever changed. God, we pray for strength, determination. Father, for them to do what really all of us should do, to see life not based on our circumstances, but on our relationship with you and the great folks that you've made a part of our lives. Father, we pray that you'd restore their joy, even amidst a tremendous change. Pray for those who are recovering, whether it be from the bomb blast or from shot, from being shot, God, we pray for full recoveries. We pray you'd make them well. We pray for your church today that's grieving. We pray for a part of your church that's grieving today, the Cook family, and the loss of their son. God, I, I, I can't comprehend the kind of agony uh, that a young man must have been feeling to think that that was the best option. God, I pray that as this family and this youth group and as this church walks through the valley of the shadow of death, that they wouldn't fear any evil, but, their, but your rod would comfort them. We pray for Pastor Mark as he speaks to the congregation today. Use his words in some, some kind of way, Father, to just to bring strength and hope to this faith community. We pray for the Immobiles. You know, I don't think there's anything in a home that upsets its routine more than having mom being sick. And Rachel's been sick for a while now because of this accident. We pray for patience and determination for the family. God, we pray that as a body, we would reach out and minister and serve them in this difficult and trying and ongoing time. We pray for her complete healing. God, I'm just so grateful for her tremendous attitude to this whole thing. 
let it be contagious to us as well. God, you're good. We trust in your goodness. And we build on your goodness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today I'm going to have fun. I don't know if you're going to have fun, but I'm going to have fun. Because this is one, to me, the, the funnest passage in the New Testament. You guys already have a fresh appreciation of how warped your pastor is, because I refer to this as the Flintstone episode in the New Testament. How many of you are old enough to remember the Flintstones, the cartoon show? Remember, you know, Fred and Wilma, you know, uh, and Pebbles, Barney and Betty and Bam Bam? Remember the trailer they used to have where Fred would carry Dino, you know, the dinosaur pet, out of the door, and he'd throw him out in the front yard, and then Dino would rush into the house and close the door, and Fred would be locked out, and Fred stayed, and I'd go, Wilma, let me in. Well, this, this is the Flintstone passage of the New Testament. Now, if I don't have your attention with that, I don't know, but I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12 with me. This is a many different ways, but it's a fun passage. Remember, we've been, we've been looking at the book of Acts saying, all right, when we, when we peel back all the layers of church history, how do we get at what faith was really like in, in the beginning stages? We're going to see some positive things. We're going to see some things here that are going to make us reflect. What I want to do is just read through the story, and then I'll go back and make some comments that will kind of bring some of the, the life of the story to us. And then I'll make some observations for us in the area of prayer that God has really been speaking to me about. Now, verse chapter 12, beginning with the first verse, says, About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who to the church. And he James, John's brother, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, and that's primarily the Jewish leadership, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. And after the arrest, he put him in prison, and he assigned four squares, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. Prayer, prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. On the night Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter was sleeping two chains, in other words, one on the right hand, one on the left, while the, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, An angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he he woke him up, and he said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off of his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him. And he put on your sandals, and he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out, and he he followed. And he, he did not know that what took place through the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And after they passed the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. The third miracle, the angel, the falling chains, and now the open gate. They went outside and passed one street, and immediately the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself. He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp. And from all the Jewish people, and from what all the Jewish people expected. When he realized this, he he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. And he knocked at the door in the gateway, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. 
Now she recognized Peter's voice. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. You're crazy, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. They said, it's his angel. Peter, however, just like Fred Flintstone, kept knocking on the door, Rhoda! And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. I, used, I wish they'd use the word amazed. I have a hard time pronouncing that word right. And motioning to them with his hand to be quiet, he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. And then he departed and went to a different place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could have happened or could have become of Peter. And after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and he ordered their execution. You see, a, a guard was was responsible for the prisoner, and when the prisoner escaped, the sentence of the prisoner was transferred to the guard. And since Peter was supposed to be executed, all the guards were executed. Then Herod went down from Judah to Caesarea. He stayed there. And he had been angry with the Tyrenians and the Sidonians. Together they presented themselves before him, and having won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their countries were was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. And we know from Josephus, an ancient historian, that this was a time where they were celebrating the emperor's uh, birthday, and they were having a huge set of games in Caesarea, and Herod was there, and he was presiding, and he gives a speech, and the populace began to shout, "It's, it's the voice of a god and not of a man. And at once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he became infected with worms, and he died. And then God's message flourished and multiplied. Great passage of Scripture. There, there's just a, a number of great dynamics we see. Let's, let's just do a little background work first. So who is this guy, Herod? Well, th- this is Herod Agrippa. Now, we're most familiar with Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great is the guy who was ruling over Jerusalem, when Jesus was born. He's the guy who had built the temple that Jesus worshipped in. He, he was the one that the wise men came to and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? He's the one who ordered the slaughter of all the two-year-old boys in the area of Bethlehem. This is the Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa, in our story, is his grandson. Herod had a son, Aristobulus, who married a woman who came out of the Maccabean line, which was, they were heroes in the Jewish journey. They, God had used them to, to uh, throw off the Roman rule, uh, the, the, the rule of, of those who, who the, from the, the descendants of Alexander the Great, and et cetera. So they had brought the freedom to the people. And so Herod, um, Aristobulus married this, this woman, and they had Herod Agrippa, the child. Herod the Great was a little bit of paranoid. And he thought his son Aristobulus was plotting to take his throne, so he executed his son. Great family to be from, isn't it? So, so Herod Agrippa and his mother then moved to Rome, where Herod Agrippa is educated with the future emperors of the Roman Empire. He personally knew Caligula and Claudius from, when, from his days in Rome. 
he's sent back to the area of Palestine to take rule. And over a, a, a six to eight year period, he keeps getting more and more territory to be king over. He's, he's basically serving in Pilate's role as the governor of this huge province. Um, he, because he has Jewish blood in him, and while he's in Jerusalem, he observes all the customs of the Jews, the Jewish leaders really are fond of him. And so in order for him to kind of maintain his position of power, he's cultivating the Romans, like the huge games that we have here at the end that he dies at, where he's trying to honor the emperor and give him prestige, but at the same time, he's trying to cultivate the favor of the Jews. So what does he do? He arrests James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, and he executes him. The Jewish leaders, the, his, his, his popularity ratings go through the roof with them. I mean, he's just rising in the polls. And he said, well, that worked. Let's arrest somebody else too. So they arrest Peter. They bring Peter into custody. It's at the day of, uh, where they're going to have a week-long festival of unleavened bread. It's connected with the Passover. And you can't execute anybody during that time. So Peter is put in prison. Two things are happening here. One, Herod, he's not dumb. He remembers the stories. Peter was put in prison before. Peter got out. Remember that? Chapter 3, chapter 4, back that area? You know, Peter is out preaching in the temple. He gets arrested. They put him in. Said, we're going to try these guys in the morning. In the middle of the night, they get released. They're back in the temple preaching again. Herod said, I don't want a repeat performance. So we're going to do this differently. I want four teams of guys, I want four teams of guys, four guys each. They take three hours during the day, they take three hours at night. Okay? I want Peter chained right hand, left hand to a guard. They stay with him all times. Then we put two guys outside of his cell. He's not escaping. I don't want any mistakes. So that's what's going on, right? While he's being held for these seven days, the church is praying. I mean, the whole time. The, the tenth of the verb here is they just constantly in prayer for Peter. Now, Peter is so scared to death that the night before he's supposed to be executed, with two smelly, burly Roman soldiers chained to his, to his wrists, he's in such a deep sleep that he thinks he's having a dream. I mean, can you imagine what kind of peace Peter had to have in his heart? I mean, what would you be doing if you thought, man, eh, you know, Six, seven hours here, I'm going to lose my life. You think, and then you got two guys chained to you. You're probably sleeping on a concrete or a rock floor. And, and you, th- you think you'd be sleeping? You know, but, but Peter's so asleep that when the angel shows up, he has to give him a kick in the side to wake him up. I mean, it really says he had to strike him on the side. And then he's like a 10-year-old headed out to the school bus. You know, Peter starts to wake up a little bit and the, and the, and the chains fall off. And, and the guy said, where are your shoes? Well, put on your clothes. Where's your coat? Come on, let's get going. And Peter's just kind of going through the motions. I mean, if it had been me, not only would I have been awake, but when the chains fell off, that angel would be chasing me. You know, but Peter, he's just, he's just asleep. And he's just going through the motions. And he's in such a deep sleep that he thinks he's having a dream. So out he goes. Finally, when they get out and they get down the street and the angel knows he's safe, the angel disappears and it finally comes to Peter. This is, this is actually happening. 
So he said, where do I go now? You know what? I'm sure there'll be at least some people gathered at the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, the author of our gospel of Mark. And we're going to see him later in the story. There's got to be people there gathered for prayer. So he heads there. He gets there. He knocks on the door. Now, you got to have this picture. Peter's out in the street. We don't know what time it is. It's 11, 12, 2 in the morning. We don't know. He's looking up and down the street to see if the guards are after him. I mean, he's just been through a jailbreak. You know, you think about the manhunt they had in the city, right? I mean, he's just been, he's, they're after me. So he's knocking on the door. And this Rhoda servant, this young girl comes, and it would have been the job of a servant to answer the door in a home like this. She comes to the door, and she says, whose is it? He said, it's Peter. And she, she just turns around and scampers back to the group and says, you're not going to believe this. Peter's at the door. Now, what have they been praying for? But what have they been praying for? They've been praying for God to release Peter, right? Peter shows up at the door, and they don't believe it. It can't be Peter. You know, the Jews had a superstition, if you will, a, a, you know, like a, a, like a belief they couldn't really prove scriptures or prove in any other way that, that everybody had a guardian angel. And that sometimes the guardian angel looked just like the person that they guarded. So in this particular case, rather than believing that God actually answered their prayer, they choose to say, well, Maybe that superstition is really true. And this is Peter's guardian angel at the door. It's Peter standing at the door as quietly as he can in a Fred Flintstone voice. Rhoda, let me in, you know. And finally, they come to and they open the door and they're just amazed at what God's done. Just amazed. And Peter quiets them and he says, listen, this is what happened. Now go tell James. And James here has got to be the half-brother. Of, of the Lord Jesus, um, you know, because it says, go tell James and the brothers, and that's a reference to the rest of the apostles, and, and I think James, the son of Alphaeus, who's another potential person who could have been this James, wouldn't be held out separately from the rest of the brothers, so this is James, the, the half-brother of the Lord, who we know from the scriptures did receive a post-resurrection experience from his brother, Jesus. He's kind of come to the lead in the church, if you will. And, and so Peter says, go tell him what's happened because the apostles now are in hiding. God is, the, 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 the pressure on the church is intensifying. Before it was the members, but they would leave the apostles alone. Now it's coming on the apostles. And Peter departs. And he, after he tells the story, he departs to a safer place. We don't know where he goes. In the meantime, when they wake up in the morning, they find out that Peter's gone. And after all the examinations, all the investigations are done, the four guys who were guarding Peter, because it was their job, they received Peter's sentence, and they're executed, and, 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 they're, and they're killed. Herod, his, his popularity is still going through the roof. And so when he gets down to Caesarea, when he gets down to Caesarea, um, they're having these games in honor of the emperor, and the people start referring to him as a god. We hear the voice of a God, and God said, well, you know what? I'm going to show you who's really God. And God takes his life. Now, what's the point of this story? I mean, there's some significant breakthroughs that happen in chapter 11. There's more breakthroughs that are going to come in chapter 13 for the gospel. Why is this story, the Flintstone episode, included for us in the book of Acts? Well, I mean, we can't say for certainty but I think the message that we can get is that God is trying to communicate and trying to give us a living record of the fact that he's going to protect the gospel 
The gospel is going to triumph over the world. And he's going to see to it. Now, that should be an encouraging word to us, should it not? There's sometimes it seems like the wrong is so much stronger than the right, correct? And here's a, here's a word from God that's saying the, the, the truth, the gospel is going to triumph. And, and that it's going to persevere. So that should be a word of hope to us. But I got to tell you, when I go to this passage of prayer, where God draws my thoughts is, is to the area of prayer. You know, you you just see this dynamic that's occurring. Now, in verse 5, it says that when Peter was arrested, he was held for these seven days, and throughout this entire period of time, the church is in prayer. I mean, this isn't just a prayer chant. They're in prayer, spread out across the city. They're in prayer for Peter. And we see God answer their prayer. We also see kind of there. And, And... I just, I just want to kind of unpack a few things that God's been teaching me over the last few weeks and, and see where this goes. So, first of all, you can't look at this passage of scripture and not deal with the subject of what expectations do we have when we pray? What expectations do we have when we pray? What were the expectations of the church? Right? I mean, they're praying for Peter's release. They don't expect it to happen, right? When Peter shows up at the door, they say, this can't be true. Can't happen. Now, well, why might they have believed that? I think there's a couple reasons. One could have been the circumstances. Perhaps it filtered out. You know what? Peter is under the heaviest guard that you can imagine. There is no way that he's escaping. Usually the custom was you took the guy's left arm. He was through that. He was um, chained to a Roman soldier. And that's a, he's got one on each arm. They've doubled security. They got two, not one, but two guards standing outside of the, of the cell. I mean, there is no escape. The circumstances say this is hopeless. This is hopeless. And when we pray in moments when things are hopeless, we have kind of low expectations, do we not? Not up here, but down here. On top of that, they had experience. Hey, guess what? We prayed for James. Right? We prayed for James. What happened to James? Off with his head. See, prayer is a nice thing, but prayer, yeah. Down here, expectations. Sometimes that's the way we pray, right? You know, what, what is it? it said that most Christians pray for rain, and then they leave without an umbrella. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's many ways. We, we don't really have high expectations for our prayers. We, we prayed about this before. We, we've been praying since the 70s for God to remove the plague of abortion from our nation. Doesn't work. Let's just stop. Never going to happen. We, we let those kinds of things ha- occur. We need to go back and ask ourselves a question. Are we looking for our umbrella when we're praying for rain? Second issue, there's just something about this passage that to me brings the issue of the purpose of prayer into focus. We live in a time where we have relegated prayer to be a tool for personal spiritual development. 
It's a discipleship process. But it's not really the way that we bring the kingdom into the world. You know, it's through prayer that we, we, we understand the word better. It's through prayer that God speaks to us. It's through prayer that God changes me, etc. So we've made it, we, we've got the grip on the personal discipleship side of things. But we've really lost touch with the fact that prayer is the most powerful instrument that God has given us to bring the kingdom into the world. Do you know what I mean? What I see happening in this text is a couple of things. One is the church here, they're in a situation that looks hopeless, and they feel helpless, and so they pray. So they pray. You know, and we, we get into situations when our anxiety levels start to rise, and, and it's in that midst when we feel like we need to do something. You know, we, we got to, you know, it's like in the old westerns, it's like, well, go boil some water. You know, you, you got to do something. I, you know, we, we feel like, i never forget, a, a numbers of years ago, probably 12, 15 years ago, I heard um, Gordon McDonald preaching out of the same text. And, and he, he made the statement, he said, you know, he said, he said I had a, I had a real, there was a night in their lives when their, one of their children got so sick that, that they, they took the, the, the child to the hospital and they weren't sure the child was going to make it. And they were, they were sitting out in the waiting room. And, he, and it just on and says, in this circumstance, there's absolutely nothing that I can do to help my child. I'm helpless. And so then he turned to prayer. But as he processed that experience, their child recovered and et cetera. But as he processed that, he says, why is it, does it take getting to a place of helplessness before we really reach out to prayer as an instrument that changes the world. You know, we, we, we have. We've taken prayer and we've made it a self-help spiritual tool. And it's designed for that, but it's designed for so much more than that. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me as it is in heaven. No, on earth as it is in heaven. It is the greatest tool. Prayer is the greatest tool that we have to affect kingdom change in the world. More than our preaching, more than our service, more than our teaching, more than our acts of love, we have no greater tool. I don't know why we've forgotten that. Do you know what I mean? We've forgotten that prayer is far more than just a spiritual tool that God's given us to put in our tool belt so we can be more like him, but it really is the instrument that God's given us to change the world from the top down. We believe it formally, but practically prayer has been relegated to discipleship and no longer embraced as real ministry and changing the world. Then lastly, this text just makes me think about the dynamics of prayer. We don't know what time it is in this story, but it's late. It's late. This church, they've been praying day in, day out for the better part of a week. And it's late at night, and they're still gathered together in prayer. Recently, I was at a gathering of just, just a group of about 15, 20 pastors. Uh, um, 
they had arranged for a pastor from Ghana to come over. Uh, he wanted to come, and, and they organized this lunch so he'd have a chance to talk to us. And the primary reason why he was here was that he, he had, a, he had a, a word that he wanted to share with us to, if you will, to hopefully build some momentum for the church. And, and, and his word was that, you know, the, the American church needs to understand that if it gets sick, the worldwide church gets pneumonia and dies. And the church in Africa is dependent in incredible ways on the church in America. And he sees the American church getting sick. And he came to challenge us as pastors to rise up and call our churches back to health. And to call the church of America back to health. But in the midst of of speaking to us, he referred to a ministry that his church does regularly. Once a month, he says, on a Friday night at 8 o'clock, we gather at the church building. And we pray until 6 in the morning. And I was thinking, would that work at Hope Chapel? And then I asked the question, would I even want to go? I mean, if God could interpret my snores as speaking in tongues, you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? We've lost the intensity and the corporateness of prayer. And they were together, together in prayer. And they prayed for hours and hours and hours. So what are we going to do about it? And let me just pull out my prophetic gift and say, I don't know. You know, I... I, I, I wish that I just had, you know, these, these wonderful things I could roll out and say, this is what we're going to do to change prayer at Hope Chapel and change prayer. I don't know. God's still speaking to me. My invitation to you today is let God speak to you. And maybe together we'll see what God's saying to all of us about how we take prayer out of just the discipleship bag and put it back in the forefront of the way that we bring the kingdom to northern Worcester County. And the way we elevate our expectations and really see God do some stuff in prayer. And to do so intensely and corporately together. Because I don't have all the answers. I think God's going to lead us on a journey. It'd be wonderful if we could just schedule a couple of events and then when they're off the schedule, we could just go, I, I have no interest in doing that. Because real transformation in these areas, and, and God just needs to speak. He just needs to speak. So my invitation for you today is don't let the conversation about prayer for you and for us as a church end in the next four or five minutes. Keep the conversation going. Because I want to tell you, I want to be a church that's gathered in the upper room, praying all night, and when the knock comes on the door, we're able to say, must be Peter. Must be Peter. Let's pray together. Father, once the spiritual leader Eli gave great advice to Samuel. That advice was when you hear God speak, simply say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Father, today we say to you, Speak. For your servants 
are listening. Amen.